Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. So my wife and some family and I were sitting down for some time together after dinner, just enjoying some conversation and with family and telling what's been going on and our stories and just having a nice time of connecting. And we'd set all the kids outside to play. Uh, this was in, when we lived in Racine, it was a very small city backyard and the type of backyard where you've got fence to fence to fence to fence to fence, fence, if you know what I'm talking about. And they were out in the backyard, they were safe. And my then six-year-old son came into the home. He was upset, just super, just red-faced, and he was hurting. And he had that look on his face that, you know, when there's just like a brokenness when you are young. And he said, Dad, Ricky just stole my sword. Ricky was our next-door neighbor who was in the fence to our right. And Ricky was someone who's new. He just moved into the house next door. And they're about the same age. And Caleb loved to play with them. It was his buddy. It was his next door guy. And you don't have a lot of, you know, buddies when you're six years old. So he had his friend, Ricky. He absolutely loved Ricky. They would play together and have adventures together. And now to have something stolen from him absolutely broke his spirit. And it broke him apart. So... I, putting on my dad hat, told him, you need to go back outside, ask Ricky for your sword back. It's not a big deal, right? You know, nothing's going on right now. Ask for your sword back, and then you can tell me if anything goes wrong. I'll go out and help you out. So out he goes. So we go back to our conversations, and we're having a nice time. But after a few minutes, he came back in. And this time, things were really different. He came in, and he was sobbing, that deep, broken, like from the soul, sobbing. He says, Dad, Ricky stole my baseball bat too. I don't want to be his friend anymore. And of course, you know, dad hat back on. Now I'm getting angry. This baseball bat was his sole possession he had wanted in a church, in Awana. It was his favorite thing. And like from the age of two on, this little guy was swinging a baseball bat in our little backyard, wiffle balls every day of life. And it was life. It was his sole possession was this little plastic baseball bat. And now Ricky had taken from him that too. So I said, okay, enough is enough. We're gonna, Dad's going to get into this. I'm datifying this thing, right? So I get up to go out and I stopped in my tracks. I looked down at my son and he's covered in spit. There are globs of spit in his hair and on his face. There's spit on his shirt. There's just a mess. And as he's sobbing and he's hot, his face is red and his head is hung in such shame and guilt. My son was ridiculed and spit upon. Now, to say dad rage isn't even the right word. Most of the time, I am a pretty chill guy, but this 
cracked me. I mean, it cracked me so hard, even to this day. Uh, now, all these years later, uh, it still just rises up something in me. Because I remember that moment. I remember the moment of looking at him. I remember the moment of looking at his face and rage started to fill inside of me. And I was going to absolutely go and destroy everybody. Nobody does this to my son. Nobody breaks the innocent of a, innocence of a six-year-old boy who simply wanted to play with his friend. Now this friend has betrayed him. Now this friend has turned his back on him. And I'm going to destroy everybody. And I'm going to tell you something very clearly. If you know me or have been around me at all, uh, again, most of the time, chill. You've never seen this version of Jason because it's only come out like once or twice in my life. And this is one of those times. I was so enraged. I didn't even know how to think. And so I stomped out of my house immediately to go destroy them all. And so we are in a city lot. I went through my back, which means their house was on a corner. So I had to walk down my driveway all the way around the block to get to the house. Even though it's adjacent to us, I had to walk around the corner to get there. And as I'm in my protective parent mode and with the image of my son with globules of spit falling from his head, the weeping of the loss of innocence and the broken of a brokenness of a lost friendship, I walked around ready to end it. I go around the corner and I see the neighbors and I see that they're having a party, that they've got a whole bunch of friends over there. And there's this large group of kids that were over there as well. The whole time as I'm going through this, I could just feel the spirit working inside of me because I don't even know what I would have said or done, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and I can feel the Spirit reminding me, don't destroy your ministry. Don't destroy your witness. Stay firm as a disciple of Jesus. Don't do anything you would regret. Don't say anything you'd be ashamed of. And so from the moment I get up to stomp around, when the time I take the corner and I turn around and get to the house, I held on to this idea that popped in there, which again, by the Spirit, I must love them. I have to love them. As a young parent, to see your child in that place, Papa Bear mode just explodes through your body. But being a father is not my identity. My identity is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so as a disciple of Christ, it came back over me that I must love them no matter what. I found the parent, took a breath, and went up to them. I told them everything that had happened. I told them about the sword and the bat and my son covered in spit. I told them about the brokenness of his heart. And we went through an awkward exchange of apologies and forgiveness. What do you even say if that was your kid? So the parents hear about this and they make this group of kids. Some of them were quite a bit older. Go and get Caleb's, his bat and his sword, which they had hid far in another neighbor's we would never found him. It was hidden far away in another neighbor's yard. They bring it back. A few more awkward exchanges. And I said, goodbye. 
and I started to walk around the house. And as I walked around the house, I wondered and I tried to think, what am I going to say to my son? What do I say? Because this is way more than a bunch of toys being stolen. It isn't about toys being stolen. This is all about this. His innocence was lost and friendship was broken. There was trust that was on the line and he was just destroyed by somebody who claimed to care for him. Walked up my stairs and I knew that he was upstairs in his room. I slowly walked up the stairs and when I got to him, he was still visibly shaken. He was hot. You know, that hot, the heat of the day and that hot that comes only from crying. He was hot to the touch. His face wet from tears. His clothes and hair damp from spit of those kids who were picking on him. I set the toys down next to him. He didn't look up. He didn't really care. The toys meant nothing to him at that point. So I took him and I wrapped my arms around him. I put him onto my lap. And he just buried his head into my chest and just wept. If you've ever had that as a parent, that feeling of hopelessness of what do I do, as your child's heart is absolutely broken, you know what I felt. And even I feel right now sharing this with you as he wept. And we just sat there in silence. My heart was broken for him. It was broken for what just happened. And so I started to pray. It's all, that's all I've got to go to is I started to pray. I'm like, God, what in the world do I say right now? What do I do? I mean, what could I say? After a few more minutes, I broke the silence. I said, Caleb, Jesus actually talks about this in the Bible. And Jesus actually knows this. And he looked up at me. And as I held him in my arms, I said, Jesus says this, son, it is really easy to love me. And it's very easy to love your mom. But it's really hard to love Ricky right now. But we have to. In fact, we're even supposed to pray for him. In Matthew 5, 43 to 47, we'll be exploring this idea. If you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, feel free to open up to that. Again, Matthew 5, 43 to 47. Jesus is teaching to a group of people, and there's a lot going on in this dynamic of his teaching. And so I, I want to really dig into this slowly, but really start to absorb this today. Because Jesus' teachings is about the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, things continue to look different than what is even inside of us or our desires or our thoughts, our wishes, our dreams. The kingdom of God flips the world upside down and actually flips us and our principles and what we think upside down. This is one of these passages where Jesus does this. Matthew 5, 43 to 47 says this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. 
bit of background on this passage, because you can be a little bit, what is going on here? Now, the Pharisees or the religious leaders and teachers of the time were teaching something completely out of context. In the Jewish culture, the Pharisees were the main teachers of the God's word and the law, which had been the Old Testament, the Torah, and the prophets. And so there was a teaching going on that was being misused at the time. And the teaching from the Pharisees and the teachers was this, that you are to deeply hate your enemies. And this is the verse they used, Psalm 139, 19 to 22. Listen to this verse. And they completely misused it. Again, Psalm 139, 19 to 22. And only you, God, would slay the, the wicked away from me. You who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Listen to that part again. It's, it's easy to hear, right? Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Those people on the outside, I hate. And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. All the people who are anti-God, all those people outside the walls, those who aren't Jewish people following Yahweh, we hate them, right? That's what they're saying here. I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. And so in this now, the teaching's happening this. We are seeing that the teaching is actually twisting here in the psalm to say that there's a political, regional, and even racial hatred. Get that word, hatred for people outside the people of God. That is not at all what is being said in this passage. This is a poetry type thing. And he's talking about the condition of God's glory, not about hating people. This led for the, the Jewish people, the teaching of them to say, if they are not following, we hate those against us. All of our enemies we hate. We hate, we hate, we hate. They are out, we are in. They are bad, we are good. And so this ongoing message was being driven into them. And Jesus says, you have heard it said that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's something they've already heard. This is the teaching that's going on. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and everybody who's outside of us, we should not love them. Jesus says, you've heard this, but it is not a correct interpretation. I am telling you to love those outside and pray for those who hurt you. He makes a very clear distinction in this verse. Everybody loves everybody who loves them, right? It is so easy to love that person who's pouring love on you, the person who's encouraging you, the person who's rooting for you. It's easy to love your friends. It's easy to love that mom or dad or uncle or neighbor or whoever it is who loves you, encourages you. But it is really, really hard to love people who break you down. Those who follow Jesus and are disciples look completely different. Those who say, I follow Christ, I'm a disciple, I want to be Jesus, I'm a Christian. I follow the ways of Christ. If that is what you say, you are, have a new definition and your love definition is that we have to love everybody. Everybody. There is no time within our faith walk that we can hate 
anyone. Anyone. Because even if it's an enemy who's against you trying to destroy your life, but he says this, I'm telling you to love your enemies and pray for those who are against you. This is mind-blowing for a crowd to hear this. I can just imagine the crowd listening, like turning, like, what did they just say? Did that dude just tell us that we're supposed to love those people? Is he saying we're supposed to love our enemies? Like Rome, Rome is our enemy. The soldiers are our enemy. They beat us. They oppress us. Rome is an occupation of Israel. So right now you're telling me that we're supposed to love the Roman government? And I could just hear the chatter and the murmurs of the crowd as people are like, dude, this guy is really not getting it. There's no way we can love them. We can't love our enemies. We're supposed to hate them. And Jesus says, no, my friends. God is love. Therefore, you love. It's easy to love those who love you. I'm telling you, you got to love the people that are hard to love because this is it. The overarching definition of Jesus' disciples is that they love in ways that others haven't seen before. They love the unloved. They care for those who are broken. They are there for the marginalized. There is no limit to love. Love has to flow out of us every single way, every single day. That is the definition of God's love for us. Those who follow him will stand out because they will love everybody. Now, it's really clear to understand that this isn't a religious act. This isn't doing a bunch of things because I'm supposed to. This is a movement of love. Love has to become how his followers are to become defined. So much so that he brings this concept back again in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. Our love will lead to forgiving those who hurt us. With those who break us down, we are to replicate that God has done by, for, by the forgiveness of sin, by loving those who, love, who don't love us. We need to love and forgive. Love and forgive. Those two together are matched together what type of God's love has for us. Love and forgiveness are tied together. And when we love and we forgive, those two come into a way in which we say, okay, if I am to do this, how in the world do I love those who have so deeply hurt me? I know that this is not an easy thing to talk about because sitting here right now are people who have been completely destroyed by people that you've been hurt, that there was love offered, then love taken back, that there's been an offer of forgiveness or something, and it was, re it was just rejected, that you had somebody care for you, and that caring person turned around and is now an enemy, that you handed them the fragile piece of your heart. They took your heart, they put it on the ground, they stomped on it, they squished it out, and moved on and didn't care. And you're saying, Jason, how in the world do I love how do I love people when there's so much pain inside of my heart? So as I sat on my son's bed with him in my arms, I kept thinking about what should I say to him? I told him about how, what Jesus said, that it was easy to love your mom and dad. and It's hard to love Ricky. I told him that 
Jesus says that we're supposed to even pray for him. I told him that we have to forgive him. I asked him if he wanted to pray for him and just show, slowly shook his head no, and I understood. I said, he just said, I can't, Dad. I said it was okay. I said it was okay because I know that feeling. I know that feeling of not being able to pray or even mutter words for those who've hurt me. So I said, let, let me pray for you. And we prayed for him, for Ricky, who prayed that Ricky would be a good boy. And we prayed that Caleb could forgive him. But I went to bed that night. My heart was just turmoil is probably the best word for it. Um, my heart was broken by watching the first time my son's heart was crushed. And in that brokenness and the turmoil, my heart was still hurting over everything he's been through. And I just started processing the betrayal. I started thinking through how much hurt that that innocent little boy was laying in his bed with everything that his little heart could muster crushed on the floor. I couldn't fall asleep. And as I laid there, I'm just thinking and thinking. And God put something on my heart. So simple, so simple, yet so profound. It was this. When was the last time I have prayed for people who hurt me in my life? When was the last time I have prayed? That began a long night of prayer. Prayer for people who've really hurt me and for those I've hurt. And in my world, in my story, and maybe you can relate to this, depending on where you are in your journey, a lot of people who hurt me called themselves Christians. Most of them call themselves Christians. People who have been in the church setting in my life, in my ministry, career, if you will, you call it that, working and trying to serve and help people. Parents who turned against me because their child lied about something in the youth ministry. People in the church who just said mean things, disrespectful, harmful things. People who broke my young heart. And a lot of them came from inside the church. I, even sitting here now, remember those days. Friends, there's a beauty to mosaic. Broken, unique pieces brought together and made beautiful through Jesus. When I was younger, my struggle was that I expected something out of those who call themselves Christians. Just because you say you're a Christ father doesn't mean you are. Right? You can call yourself a fish, doesn't mean you're a fish. The problem that I had was that there were people that I trusted, in fact, I even looked up to. And, but there was a theme in these that each one of the pains I went through, love was not included in the story. That we can disagree, we can have hardships, we can go through hard things together, but if love is not in the story, then that's where destruction comes. And as I laid in that bed, started praying and saying, God, I've got to forgive them. I need to love them. But God, what is with your church people? What is with people inside of the church? Why does it seem that there's so many church pain? I know the story of our mosaic friends and family here. There is a lot of pain that has come from the community of faith. Now, let's be clear. Any community in there's going to be pain, right? But in the church, we're supposed to do it better. And the reason why is because we are supposed 
to love everybody. And if we're not loving, if we're not putting love at the forefront of what we are doing, we are going to move into the place, Mosaic Church, just like every other place that brings pain and destruction because Jesus' disciples are defined by love. And that means loving those who've hurt you. So in my experiences, if I had hurt somebody or they hurt me, if love was the catalyst and in the forefront, there would have been reconciliation and love. Because as I think back, there were hard times in the church in which love was the forefront, in which there's forgiveness, and there was weeping of joy as we came back together, a broken relationship restored. Love wins. But unfortunately, when love isn't there, man, pain. And now we get this word called enemy. Jesus made it so clear that we are to love, love, love. Because love is what's going to define us to the rest of the world. John 13, 34 to 35 says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Let me read that again. John 13, 34, 35. I would encourage you to write this down, make this your wallpaper, <laughs> figure out this, just, this has to be tattooed on our hearts, or we will just be another place of saying we're disciples, but we're not loving unless we live this out as a church family. We want this family to be a place where healing comes. Conflict is going to happen. It's not about always getting along. It's about healing. It's about loving those who hurt us. It's about grace. It's about mercy, because this is our definition. Listen to this again. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you have a church story or church history in which there was not love among the family, there was gossip, there was backstabbing, there were lies, selfish motives, the list goes on and on. If you were in a church environment where you saw not love, then you saw or have experienced why Jesus makes this so clear. Because when we don't love each other, how in the world are we going to love those who don't love us? How do we love? How in the world are we going to be givers of love when love is not even in our vocabulary? So Jesus says, you must love one another. And this is hard because you know, it doesn't necessarily like everybody. Liking is not loving. Liking is like we have things in common and we hang out and we're cool. Like liking is a different thing. Like I, as the pastor of Mosaic, cannot hang out with everybody all the time. And you as an individual can't hang out with everybody in the church family. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have to love. And love goes way further than liking. Love, as we remember, is sacrifice. It's giving you precedence over me. It means me giving my all for you, and I look for nothing in return. Love 
trumps liking in a major way. We must love each other. Love is not a question mark. Love is how we're going to be defined to the world. If you find someone who says they're a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, whatever terminology, and they don't love, you now start to say like, well, you're just like everybody else. But this radical, crazy, generous love transforms not only our lives, but the lives of everybody. Love is the answer. It is so significant. When you look at Acts chapter 2, we see that the church is starting to form, right? So the first church, if you will, is coming together who are Jesus followers after he has left. In Acts chapter 2, they start forming a group of people that gave to everybody. Anybody in need got what they needed. They loved and cared for each other. They hung out together. They had some meals together. They worshiped together. And the news of Jesus was spreading. And this was all lived out because it was significantly different from the religious leaders. They were not motivated by love. They were motiva motivated by law, power, prestige, and money. Maybe you've had some of those experiences. The religious leaders of Jesus' time, as they're teaching and preaching, where was love in this? Love wasn't to be found. So now Jesus says, you have to love each other because this is a movement of love that looks totally different. Our love for each other defines what God did for us through Jesus Christ. Love wins. It was the key to the spread of Christianity because inside of this movement, love was the key to his movement. Lots of false religions started coming. A lot of them started saying all these other things, but love and grace was the answer to what Jesus brought to all people. So now the lowliest person in your community should have the same love, respect, and honor as the person who is the highest in the community because that is not the hierarchy we work on anymore. We love everybody because Jesus does. And now the beauty of the gospel is seen because we are all one in Christ and we are family. Our love for each other is essential. He's our example. Because in Colossians 3.13, Paul says this to the church. Bear with each other and forgive each other, each other. Whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. But I like the New Living Translation. It says this, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So I come back to this question. If Jesus' disciples are supposed to be defined and full of love and forgiveness, why do so many Christians hurt each other. Why in the world? Why in the world, if I go onto a Facebook thread that somebody puts something, I, I go down the feed and I watch Christians who say, I follow Christ. And then they follow that with hate-filled, angry speech. Uh, why is it when I look into our world as it is, and I look into our society, we point fingers at other Christians and how they do things. We say, our church is better than that church and that church, oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm done with it. And you should be emphatically done with it as well. I'm saying this. The church are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The family is the doors that you walk in on Sunday gatherings. We are a mosaic family and we celebrate and love so many churches in our area. 
We love our friends at Wellspring. We love our, our friends at Northbrook. We love our friends at Kettlebrook. We love our friends all around this area. We have so many good friends in different church locations. and We celebrate them because we are all disciples. When love comes out of the conversation and we say, well, that church is garbage. That church says this. The only time that we start to question any followers is that if they're teaching a false doctrine or not teaching the word of God. At that point, we have to part ways according to the Bible. But I'm saying this. We are all together as disciples. Now, my preference is the Mosaic family and how we do things, but it's not everybody's. I like what we do here. Obviously, it's my family. I love you guys. We're weird. We're messed up. We got crazy uncles and crazy aunts and all that kind of stuff, but we love. And I'm so unbelievably proud of how this church loves each other. We don't get it right. We don't do it perfect. I'm not saying that, guys. Don't don't hear that. I'm I'm not dumb, right? But we love. I've seen love over the course of our short, small church existence time that has blown me away from years of ministry. I've seen sacrifice financially. I've seen sacrifice of time. I've seen sacrifice of goods. I've seen people giving away generously just to help those who are in need. I've seen generosity move into our community. I've seen generosity move into other parts. I've seen love that we are supposed to do and loving those who are hard is part of that story. Loving enemies is part of our story too. Because fortunately or unfortunately, our church is made up of people who have some real deep church hurts. And I want to say something bold. I, want to, I believe it's time. I think it's time that we start to heal some relationships. I think it's a time that we start to love those who have hurt us. If there's hurt in this room, that you fix it today. If there's hurt from a church you came from at a former place, that you forgive and you love and pray for those people. If there's hurt from a former parent, a hurt from a friend, a hurt from a Ricky, that you would pray and that you would love. And this is why, not just saying this, there's so much at stake right now. There's literally the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most powerful thing in the universe, the forgiveness of sins because of the grace of God that is over all of us in this room, that we do not have enough time for all this bickering and nonsense and hatred. It crushes our heart. And if you, have a, if you notice this, those who hold on to this anger are bitter, angry, frustrated, aggressive people. And they will tell you what they think and they don't care what you think about it. And they are just full of anger and hatred and bitterness because that is not the way of Jesus. He says, release, forgive, pray, forgive. Because you've been forgiven of much, we need to forgive others of much. His way is love, not anger and bitterness for those who've hurt you. So as I close up my time and my story, I wanted to show you how the story ended. For little six-year-old Caleb, we sat and we prayed for Ricky every night before bed. We would pray for him. We saw him outside a few times running around in the backyard and you know, Caleb looked out the window and just didn't want to go out. We kept praying and 
Caleb said he eventually wanted to go talk to him. And I said, you can go talk to him if you want to. And he came back in. And after a few days, Caleb came into the house. He was smiling ear to ear. Big, huge smile. He says, Dad, Ricky and I are friends again. If a six-year-old can get it, why can't we? Matthew 5, 43 to 47. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. So I want to give you this time right now. I'm going to pause here just for 30 seconds. Let's pray for our enemies. Take the small time to start something in your heart of forgiving and letting go and praying for those who've hurt you. Let's take a small moment and pray that you are the catalyst of the type of love that would love the Rickies in your life, the ones who have stolen from you, who have spit on you, and who have betrayed you, that you can say, Father, it hurts but I've loved the way you've called me to love and I've forgiven my enemies. So let's take 30 seconds. Whoever's on your heart right now, someone who is, you consider an enemy or someone's hurt you, let's just pray. Pray for them and ask God for the strength to forgive them. Great God, we come before you as broken people who've been hurt. And Jesus, your teaching is hard. And those who've broken our hearts and betrayed us and spit on us. Lord, I think about your story as they beat and they whipped you and they spit on you and they mocked you and they betrayed you and your disciples left you. People who are cheering for you are now mocking you on the cross, telling you to come down. Thief on the cross on your side starts making fun of you. Jesus, you said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. I don't even know what to say except wow. Jesus, you didn't just say a bunch of words. In the thick of the fight, you did exactly what you taught us to do. Give us the strength, the love, the way that you love. To forgive our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. In your great name, amen. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.